Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Templey. sexual nature it should be for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people i do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show the facts we're retelling you were presented to us by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims my description of the crime scenes are what i saw with my own two eyes If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. Today, we're going to be continuing this series titled Monsters, and this is Monsters Part 4. If you're not listening to the first three, go back and listen to it. Otherwise, you're going to spoil it for yourself, right? Then stay tuned at the end of today's show from some announcements. And let's just get right to it. When I left you last, Calvin Bowden and I had just left a meeting with the family. This is the day following, the evening following the brutal murder of our 82-year-old victim. And we had just spoken with the granddaughter of the victim, and she became pretty belligerent with me, et cetera, when I asked to see her hands. So what do we do now? We, we go back to the detective's office and have another jam session, if you will, where we get everybody up to date on where we're at and what the things that are happening, the autopsy, just any calls that have come in. And y'all, every time they run the news story, like at noon or 6 p.m., then you you get a you know couple calls that'll come in. Those leads have to be run down. Some of them, most of them, 99% are BS, but you still have to look at everybody. But we're focused now on the victim's son-in-law who has been missing. And we... We've gotten a warrant for his arrest for possession of cocaine and for unauthorized use of a movable vehicle. We've done the bolo, the be on the lookout for. We've entered him into the NCIC computer. He gets stopped anywhere in the United States. They're gonna they're gonna hold him for us. So what do we do? We go back and what do you do at this point, right? Now we have all his personal banking information. We have his cell phone company information. We have all his credit cards. We have the vehicle information. We have tons of information, right? But what do you do with it other than enter him into NCIC and just sit back and wait? Hell no. We're going to pull out all the stops. This is a death penalty case straight up. We got to stay on this guy. And then you know what? He may not have anything to do with it. We're going to, we're damn sure going to find out. And we got to stay on him. Plus, now the granddaughter is on our radar, not smoking hot like this guy that's missing. And for all we know, he may have been kidnapped by drug dealers. I mean, I, she may have been telling the truth. 
but what do you do? Now, we're detectives, Calvin and I. We're very good at what we do, and you know, on the homicides and whatever, whatever type case we're working, because it's what we do every day and what we've been trained to do. Now, if you're doing a manhunt and you know this guy's already out of state, which we know he was. He was last seen in Mississippi by a family member. It was a freak encounter, a chance encounter, bad for him at Walmart. And so we know he's, at least at that point in time, he was outside the state of Mississippi. So who do you call? You call the professionals. In this case, it is the U.S. Marshal Service. Now, the U.S. Marshal Service are simply the world's best at tracking bad guys down, the ones that you get warrants for, the ones who escape or whatever. You you don't want to have those bloodhounds on you, okay? They have all the tools and, and the ways to do it, so we call them. And then Calvin and I went and met with them, met with the agents and, and told them what we had and why we needed to find this guy now. If he is guilty, then certainly he's still a danger to society, right? This lady was executed, not only severely beaten, but executed or shot in the back of the head at close range with a 22 long rifle bullet. So we go and meet with them, and they tell us, you know, what, what they're going to do. So what they do basically, and I'm not going to give away, and I'm sure it's changed because it's been like 16 years ago, but they... We give them the cell phone information, the credit card information, et cetera, the banking information, um, and they do what they do. They walk us through the process on getting warrants for the cell phone company, the bank, the credit card companies. And what what I say warrants, y'all, I mean like search warrants, where we get notified anytime this guy uses any of these cars or uses his cell phone. We we know what the location is. We start to hunt him. Well, certainly I'm a hunter for meat, right? But it, it, you know, I'm not a man tracker. That was their job, and certainly they got on the case. They knew the importance of it. Knew it was going to be a death penalty case. And so, if this guy's guilty, then then he's he's a real danger. And of course, we told him about all the firearms being taken for the residents. So we know if it was him, we know that he's armed and dangerous and he knows it's going to be a death penalty case. So really it's a public safety issue besides the fact that we want to get him in. Now, you know, DNA has gone to the crime lab, but guess what? DNA takes forever. Even when you put a rush on it, it is nowadays it's much better there's a much shorter turnaround but back then. In 2006, you could walk into the crime lab with a letter from the governor and ask him to put a rush on DNA, and it's still going to take months, okay? And we had so much DNA collected from the blood spatter and the fat drops throughout the house. I mean, just we were in the infancy stage of the investigation, but we got the U.S. Marshals on board now, look, they're the best in the world at tracking down people. But they don't know shit about working a homicide. And that's just a fact that they went and did what they did and helped us get up on, on tracking him through financial means and cell phones, et cetera. But they're not going to question him about the, the murder or you know, they're not trying to investigate the murder. That was Calvin and mine's job. So we did that, and it's a lot that goes into y'all having to get. You're not going to call up AT and T or Nextel, who it was back then, and, and just say, "Hey, you know what? Uh, we have a suspect in a in a homicide investigation, and we would like you to start tracking his phone for us and send us any towers that his phone pings off." Of. No, for that they're not doing it, and they they almost to a point or asses about it in criminal investigations. It, it, it's really tough. Now, and I get that. At the same time, I don't. You would think that they would want to help, but I guess they they have to protect their their uh, customers, and I get that also. So let the marshals handle it. They, they walked us through the process. It takes 
a period of days and we get up on everything. So once we're up on it, meaning that we're tracking it, then we, 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 we just have to wait, right? So we're up on it, we're tracking it. And when, let's say, I think the last time he, the first information that came in from the cell phone company, the last time he used a cell was somewhere in like the middle of Mississippi, turned it on for like less than a minute. I guess he'd listen to voicemails or whatever and turn it back off. He knew he could be tracked by the cell phone. The credit cards and the bank cards. Now, you know, if you go on the run, you got to have money. Okay. And, and he had access to money through debit card and, and some credit cards. And so those are all different companies that you have to deal with. But we, any information we got from those credit cards, and even though it was a U.S. Marshal, unfortunately, we were 24 hours behind or up to 20, I think it's like 12 to 24 hours behind. So we started getting information in the next couple of days. He used card for, uh, for a hotel room somewhere in the middle of Mississippi, a little cheap fly-by-night hotel. And so what do we do? We have to send somebody up there to try to get video and, and, and all that, uh, see if there's any video from the hotel, you know, call them, get the receipts, and we're establishing the case, and the U.S. Marshals are assisting. And all this is going on over a period of days. Meanwhile, locally, we went to his bank. Why? Because on the afternoon that the victim was murdered, about, I think, like four or something in the afternoon, his card was used to make a withdrawal at the ATM in Watson. So what do you do? You have to get a subpoena or search warrant, whatever you want to call it, for that bank to go get the video from the ATM machine. Now stick with me. This is important. And it takes time, y'all. I mean, it's just a shit show. When it, when it, but you have to, it has to be done correctly and you have to follow procedures and steps because it's a death penalty case. And if they can get any video or purchases or whatever thrown out, they're going to do it. And then you get a conviction on a death penalty case and they're going to sit there for 18 or 20 years on death row trying to challenge the information that you got and saying it's a bad conviction. So it, it's tedious without going into all the details. Real pain in the ass, but it has to be done. We have to speak for the victim. We have to solve this case. And, of course, there were a couple other little leads that were coming in about different things, and we followed up on what have you. But we go to the bank and pull the ATM video, uh, uh, or not video, it's pictures that, um, that the ATM camera's taken. He pulled up in the maroon truck that afternoon before dark, and you could see him clearly, and he was in the same shirt that, I believe it was a, a yellow, yellowish T-shirt with a um, pocket on it, and that he had been seen on camera at the Walmart in Mississippi. From the pictures of the ATM, it appeared there was another person riding in the passenger seat of the truck. When I say appeared, those, those photos aren't the best. And it's not like the passenger was going to be leaning over in front of the ATM, waving at it and shit, right? But it appeared, now he's a big dude, and he took up most of the screen, but from the shadow, from what I remember in my head, it appeared that there was someone in trouble, but you certainly couldn't say who it was, or even that it was a human. It could have been whatever stuffed in the, in the passenger seat. But establishes a timeline that he was still in that area withdrawing money or attempting to withdraw money out of the ATM after she was murdered. Now, let's go back to the autopsy. I forgot to tell you that I think the, the time of death was established around like maybe 12.30, 12.45, approximately p.m. on that afternoon. So here you have him four hours later, not miles from the residence, withdrawing money 
oh yeah, baby, it just got a little bit sweeter for us on the probable cause end. Now, certainly a defense attorney would say, well, you know, he didn't have any blood on him at, at the Walmart or you couldn't see any cuts on him, et cetera. But the very fact that he told the people at his work, his stomach was upset. He was going home that morning and, and then he left work by like nine o'clock, nine thirty. And here it is. If he went home and she was brutally murdered around noon, and here it is four hours later, and you are attempting to withdraw money. Okay. Where else would he have been besides in the house? So anyway, so, so he's on the run. Uh, I, I, you know, we never stopped working it and the marshals were fantastic. And actually, you know, the, the credit cards and stuff, they showed, I'll tell you the track. He went up in the Mississippi into Northern Mississippi and he used a credit card somewhere else. And then I think he turned the cell phone on and he was in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Now Vicksburg, Mississippi is in the North West quadrant, if you will, of Mississippi. And it's directly across the river from the state of Louisiana. And he used the card up there somewhere. I think another another hotel. And this is over a period of days, y'all. So evidently, he didn't have a lot of cash. I mean, he, this guy was not a dummy. I mean, if he had cash, he, he, would, he would use it to pay for a hotel. So he knew we were going to be looking for him and trying to track him. And he, he knew enough to... When he turned his cell phone on, he didn't turn it on for long. I think he was probably turning on, checking his messages, and then turning it back off. Every morning, we're staying late until we can't work anymore. But every morning we come in, the first thing we do, the, the marshals call with the latest update on any hits on the phones and the credit cards and what have you. And the credit card companies are sending the stuff in. But one thing, y'all, I'm going to tell you this. It's been my experience throughout my career that people that go on the run when they run out of money or they can't get high anymore, especially if narcotics are involved, you know, let's say they're, they're staying high, et cetera. When they're coming down, they run out of money. Guess what they always, almost always do? Always. They go back to a place that was safe for them earlier in their life. Generally, that means your hometown where you're born. And this guy was originally from Louisiana, over around Oakdale, Louisiana, that which is in the western part. It's not south. It'd be almost in the middle of the state, but the western part of the state. A small parish of where he's from. So... We had called the sheriff's office over there, and I actually talked to the sheriff, and I told him what we had, and he knew the family name. And and I said, listen, and he's on the run. He's been on the run for, you know, I actually called him in, in the beginning of it after meeting with the marshal. I said, I mean, he only has access to a limited amount of funds on the credit cards, and I, there's a high probability that he's coming home at some point. Now, the problem is for your deputies, and they only had a couple because it's a really rural parish. If they roll up on this guy, he's, I mean, it's a death penalty case and we know he's armed or we assume that he was armed from taking the firearms from the residence. And so they were appreciative of it. And you know, we gave him the vehicle description and he told all his people and they were going to keep an eye out, what have you. Now, you might ask, why wouldn't the bank shut down his access? Why wouldn't the credit card company shut down his access to money if he's a murder suspect and he's on the run? Well, shit, we didn't have another way to track him unless he turned his phone on. Certainly, every police department in the United States is not going to just be sitting around watching for this Marine truck on this guy, right? I mean, these shit you get... Thousands, probably uh, thousands, maybe too much. You, you get tons of bolos every day that come to your dispatchers and it, it gets printed out on the NCIC computer. And unless there's something that's saying specifically 
this person might be in your area, they're not even going to tell you about it. I mean, they, they, they take the whole day to listen to all the bolos from across the United States. So this is how we're tracking. Not very effective, but it's the best means that they had to do it. So track them into Louisiana, into the northern part of Louisiana, in which is Ruston. If you go across from Vicksburg in Louisiana and you're heading west on the interstate, it goes uh, Monroe, then Ruston. Ruston's kind of in the middle where Louisiana Tech is. I think Ruston was the, we came in the next morning. He had been, he had used the card in Ruston. Well, that, the problem with that is, again, y'all, it's behind time. It's not real time. And so we know he's headed back to Louisiana. Well, he could be going to Texas or Arkansas or wherever, but my gut feeling told me he was going home. And from Ruston to his to where he was from was probably about three, three and a half hours, maybe a little bit more. And then a week had gone by. And I mean, this was on the seventh day. And I, I can remember this because it was, it was, it was, my daughter was coming in. It was a Wednesday before Thanksgiving. My daughter was coming in. She had been picked up. She's coming to spend Thanksgiving with me. And every Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I always fry turkeys. And y'all might have seen my video last year, right? And I'm going to do it again this year. But it, I always fry turkeys, and we give away some to clients and stuff like that and, and family and friends. But it was a big day. The next day was going to be a you know, a big day, my frying turkeys. They said it would have been Tuesday night, Tuesday when, when he was seen in Ruston. And people come in, family members come in from out of town for Thanksgiving and, and all that. It's a big day. I'm supposed to be off unless we find out something important on this, on this guy and where he's at, et cetera. So worked all day on the case and then I'm like, man, I'm going to the house, you know, and then Calvin's like, I'm going to, man, and my family's coming in, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, it was, of course, we had worked it to the point we couldn't work anymore. We're following him. The marshals are looking for him and we're excluding other leads and things that popped up. I'll never forget it. I walked through, it was five, no, six o'clock. The Local news in Baton Rouge area, Channel 9, but WAFB is one I watched at the time. I walk in the door. My family members are there. My daughter is there. We, the family members ran from out of state, and the party's already started. And the cooking's already been going on. I'm giving hugs and giving my daughter a hug, and guess what? The... Six o'clock news just came on and they have their little music they play, et cetera. And I'm giving my daughter a hug and the big screen TVs above the fireplace and they flash breaking news. Suspect, an 82-year-old victim's homicide, just arrested in, I think it's Allen Parish, just arrested. So breaking news, this just in. The suspect in the murder case of the victim, it just arrested in whatever the parish was. Y'all, I might, I'm horrible names. I think it was Allen, which is an extreme, uh, like three hours away from me. And I was like, shit, guarantee you when you work in a homicide and the, if it's a holiday, or you get a detective on call or you, it's an anniversary or whatever, you got big plans. You can almost guarantee your sugar is going to turn to shit. And I look up and I see it and they say, deputies just arrested the suspect at a wildlife management area in this parish. And he was taken into custody when the deputy was patrolling through, he was taken into custody and we'll give you more information as we get it. Well, shit, I hadn't even got the call. Then... Pager goes off. All my family's in there in the living room. And Pager goes off. And then my cell phone goes off. And and it was to call the radio room. But shit, I already knew what it was. Cell phone goes off. It's Calvin. He said, brah. You can call it Calvin. I said, brah, brah. 
they got him. They got him. I said, I know. I said, I'm rolling out. I'm, give me five minutes. And I said, where you want to meet at? I said, you going to drive or I'm going to drive? I said, my big truck's going to take a lot more gas. And Calvin had an SUV, a, a GMC SUV was his unmarked vehicle. And my, my truck was a diesel. It was a lot harder to get fuel for, you know. So we decided to take Calvin's vehicle. I had to leave my family, which was nothing new. And, you know, told him, and my daughter, she was young at the time. I guess she would have been eight years old. And she was like, Daddy. And I said, Baby, Daddy's got to go to work. Daddy's got to go get this bad guy. You know, and she, she got it. I mean, she was proud of me. And, um, but I mean, I'd been a single father for a, a since she was younger than two. So she needed my police career. And there's a lot of times I couldn't get her and stuff like that. But anyway, she understood. She knows about bad guys, which she did back then. She knew about bad guys, but she didn't, she didn't like it, right? So I go meet Calvin, and we start to drive over. And I think it's like a three-hour ride all the way across the state to where he was. And but we called and, and got their uh, chief deputy on the phone, and he told us what happened. He said, my guy was pulling through. Just he was on patrol. I think he was the only deputy on patrol that night because it's rural, rural parish. And but he had the bolo. We had called back, actually called back that day. And I said, Listen, we had him in Ruston last night. Chances are he's going to be in your area tonight. I mean, chances are he's heading home. It, and like I told y'all, bad guys always go home when they run out of money or they run out of dope or to not home to a place that safe for them and that they knew. So Chief Deputy says, yeah, man, he said, my guy was just happened to be pulling through the camping area of the wildlife management area and saw the truck. And, and he knew that we gave him the bolo or to be on the lookout for that day. And I mean, he shit, he did a good job. And actually, the, he went he had just gone on duty at like at four o'clock in the evening. I think they worked 10 hour shifts where we worked 12s when I worked the street. And say so he just cruised through. I mean, the guy didn't have any family members directly that lived there anymore in that parish. But this this deputy was young. He was a rookie, y'all. I'm talking about like green, green, like two months on the job. So he's eager and he's out there and he wants to catch a murderer and what good place to go check now wildlife management areas in louisiana it, i'm fortunate enough where i get to hunt family land and i'm not in a hunting club and all that but if you don't if you can't be in a hunting club and you don't have family land in the state of louisiana one thing they do do is provide wildlife management areas and that's where the general public can go hunt when seasons are open and some of them do have camping areas so the, the, this parish had one of the top management areas, and people would camp there, especially Thanksgiving week. That's the week that the rifle seasons would be open on the management areas, and you know, people would go spend their holiday there camping, what have you. So the deputy said he was rolling through. He saw the truck parked underneath a tree in the camping area. No camper attached or anything like that. He puts the spotlight on the truck in the driver gets out. It's our guy. He gets out, and the deputy said that he got on his loudspeaker, and and because it's a, actually it's a felony stop. First of all, he he thinks, well, he knows he's a murder suspect. Secondly, knows that he's going to be armed because we told him all the the weapons were missing from the residence. Knows he's going to be armed, and it, you know tells him you put your hands up, put your hands up. He, took cover behind his car and, and he's shouting loud verbal commands to him while the guy is in the spotlight. He said, put your hands up, put your hands up. And he said, our guy stood there and he looked at him and he wouldn't put his hands up. And he said, I, I started screaming louder like they taught me in the academy. He said, put your hands up, man. You know, put your hands in the air, put your hands in the air. Well, why do you do that? Because he, he didn't see a weapon on tucked in his waistband or anything, but he could have had it. He had on uh, jeans and another T-shirt with a, a pocket on the front. 
And but he all the main thing is he's standing in the driver's side door. The deputy can't see what's on the front seat of the truck. The he doesn't know if there's anybody else in the truck, and and it's a, an extended cab truck. So you stand in there. Our suspect is refusing to obey the commands of the officer to show his hands, and he said. He said, what he, he just kept staring at me. And he said, I just knew he was going to go for a gun. And he said, I thought I was going to have to kill him. And then he said, it, you know, he called it in that he was going to be out with the vehicle. So somebody was, some reserve deputy or somebody was coming to back him up. And he heard the sirens coming in, in the distance. And the suspect heard the sirens. And then finally, when he heard the sirens coming, he looked back in the truck to his left and he stared at it. And meanwhile, the deputies continued to shout commands at him, show him, don't do it, show me your hands, show me your hands. And he said, I just knew he was going to go for a gun. I thought, I thought he had a gun in the truck. And then he said he looked back at the deputy and as the other, as the sirens got close to the campground, he finally put his hands up in the air and he told him, Turn around, keep your hands up, and the uh, the other officers got there, and they did what would technically be a felony stop. They made him walk backwards to the sound of the voice, and then get down on his his knees, interlace his fingers behind his head, and they would go up and t- they took him into custody, handcuffed him behind his back. They pat frisk him for officer safety, looking for weapons, and he didn't have anything on him. But then they get him away. They have to clear the truck. So they approach the truck tactfully. Of course, they ask him, is there anybody else in the truck? He says no. And they approach the truck tactfully and clear it. But there's nobody else in the truck. But guess what? There was a pistol in the center console right there. And then I, I loaded 45 caliber pistol. And that's what I truly believe that the guy almost got shot, right? I believe that the suspect, well, I know that the suspect was thinking about shooting it out with him because he knew he was in a rural, rural parish and he knew the chance of this guy having back up anywhere near him were slim. So anyway, back to it. They, they, they arrest him on our warrants for unauthorized use in the possession of cocaine. I don't think we had the attempted murder or I don't think we had the murder warrant at this point because we're waiting on more evidence. I might be wrong on that. Memory's kind of fuzzy on it. Doesn't matter. So Calvin and I are driving over and we're talking it up the whole time, how we're going to play it. You know, first thing we need to do is get him past Miranda. Secondly, get him do a consent to questioning for him. We, yeah, I mean, this is the death penalty, y'all. This is the Super Bowl of homicides. And so what are we, we going to do if he clams up? And then we were kicking ideas back and forth the whole way. Now, listen, that little GMC SUV was rolling. You heard me? And, and we got stopped twice. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you we were going over 100 miles an hour, but if I could tell you that, I'd probably tell you who we were. And we got stopped twice, and actually, you, you don't even get stopped. They, the, the cops pull in, they they think they're going to get this big, badass speeder going over 100 miles an hour, and they turn on the lights. Well, you turn on your hidden strobes, and then they, they turn their lights off, and they back off, right? They know you're a cop or law enforcement. So we get there, and this is probably one of the most rural parishes in the whole entire state, and we, we had to— uh, get to their jail, which is in the middle of nowhere, which is where he was he was at. And we get there, and the um, the sheriff met us, and the chief deputy met us. And it's been like two hours, two and a half hours. And when we they met us and said, "Look, we, he ain't, he ain't saying shit. We didn't ask him anything because we asked him not to. Uh, uh, he did want to know what he was under arrest for, and we told him unauthorized use of movable and possession of cocaine." And said he just laughed. He said that the sheriff said it's like an evil laugh, and 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 you know kind of shrugged his shoulders. So he said that he hadn't had anything to eat, and then they they fed him like a sandwich and some chips or some shit. And but they had him in an interview room for us. And so we go in and open the door, 
and he's sitting across this table from us, and he's, he's handcuffed to a bar on the table. He's sitting across from us, and we're walking to the, I guess you'd call it an interview room. We walk in, and I said his name. I said, I'm Detective Overton, the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office. My partner, Detective Calvin Bowden. I said, I guess you know why you're here, huh? And he just sat there and looked at us, kind of smacking his lips and his little evil-ass smile on his face. Now, again, I'll describe him for you. He was really, really heavy set. He, I guess he had been shaving while he was on the road. He didn't have a beard or anything. I think he had a, a mustache, but no long stubble beard or whatever. It's just, just big, thick glasses. Older guy, but older to me. I mean, I'm older than he was now, but I think he was like 50, 49 or 50, and just, just a, just had an air about him that just, I mean, almost make your hair stand up in the back of your neck. Now, I've dealt with evil a lot of times, and 98.5% of what I do for a living is read people, and that just, man, this dude, he had it on him, right? And he was, and I, I didn't knew I was standing in the presence of evil. And so, anyway, I introduced ourselves, and we sit down, and I said, look, before I say anything, before you say anything, I'm going to advise you your rights. So you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be against you in a court of law. You have a right to attorney prior to and during question. If you can't afford one, a court one for you, you understand your rights. And he just kind of sat back a little bit in his chair and he smiled. I said, do you understand your rights? And he just smiled. I said, okay, motherfucker. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. I said, I read you your rights and I'm recording this and you are, and I said his name and he shook his head, yes. And I said, so I have a warrant for your arrest for unauthorized use and move them, whatever else it was. And he kind of smiled. I said, so you, I said, but you know why we're really here? I said, it's about our victim and he's smiling. I said, hey, you think it's fucking funny? And I said, you know, this is a death penalty case, right? And she's 82 years old. And so you got some explaining to do. And he just smiled. And Calvin, you know, said a couple things to him, whatever. And he just smiled, this evil smile. And he's got those big, thick glasses. And it's almost like he's taunting us. And what I wanted to do is come across the table and knock his fucking teeth down his throat. But I didn't. And I said, all right. You know, I said, you smile all you want to. You're under arrest for that. And we are going to let them book you in here on our warrants. And then we're taking you back to Livingston Parish. Now, let me explain that to y'all. Where If you get arrested in 10 buck two, but you have a, a warrant for your arrest out of your your hometown of Clinton, Louisiana, and you get arrested way across the United States, or if you get arrested in the next parish or whatever, wherever you get arrested and that warrant is in the NCIC computer, you have to be booked in wherever you're arrested at first. Whatever jurisdiction you're arrested in, you have to be booked into their system. And then we come in with the NCIC warrant copy and take possession of you as an inmate or an arrestee. And I tell you, I shouldn't tell funny stories, but one of the things dear old dad Chuck Watts taught me was if you arrest somebody that's from out of state or from far off, or especially in a murder case, something you was going to trial, you arrest them on a warrant, you want to be the first one to advise them of their random rights, whether they talked or not, right? And Chuck got me on this one. I forget what case it was. But it was a guy that was from like, I don't know, Alaska or somewhere like that. And, and, and we had a tip to on, on this bad guy and we went to go get him and went up and made the arrest on identified, made arrest. And I mean, as soon as said the name Chuck started advising those rights, I, I didn't get it at the time. I was a rookie detective. And when we got done and he said, you know, I did that partner. I said, why? He said, because whoever, read you your rights if it goes to trial they have to fly you 
to wherever it is and you get to spend a night in a hotel and you get the money to eat off of. He said, basically, it's like a mini vacation, all because you read him the rights. He said, take that one with you, right? So anyway, back to it. It, it takes a while. And even the small jail, and, and they have to book him in. They have to fingerprint him on the APHIS machine, which is, that's y'all, that's the automatic machine. They used to use the cards, the ink cards, where you roll your fingers in the ink and you roll it on the cards in the appropriate place, your, your fingers and your thumbs. And then, uh, but now it's on APHIS. It's all electronic. So they roll, roll them in. They print them in. And then they, you know, shit, the, it's just a process. They got to do their booking forms and, it, you know, it takes an hour or so or whatever. And, and it, even though we were top priority. And so Calvin and I are just standing there and waiting on them to get done printing them. Cal's like, what are we going to do, bro? What are we going to do? I said, well, you, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take a long, slow-ass ride back to Livingston Parish. He's like, what do you mean? I said, we need to play it up. I said, you and I are not going to ask him any questions, but we need to talk about life as it may be for someone who's looking at the death penalty. Cal's like, ah, I got you, I got you. And and we we played well together. And Cal was super smart. I said, play well. We played off each other. And and a lot of times, you know, we knew what each other were thinking. We knew what angle uh, we were going at. And this guy... I told you everybody's different. You don't have to be hard on everybody. Some people you need to be a little bit passive with. Some people you need you need to be a little rougher with. Some people you you need to pray with. Whatever it takes to get the juice to get the confession, that's what I did for a living. Okay, and I was going to get the confession out of this motherfucker, or you know, it's certainly going to get the conviction. And I, I, what I read on him is. He thinks he's the smartest person in the room. And the deputy telling us that he was, he truly believed the guy, he, he believed our guy was going to reach for that gun until he heard the other sirens approaching. And that's when he gave up when the, the backup was pulling up. So that told me that even though he, He's narcissistic or what psychopathic, whatever it may be. He somewhat had a little bit of respect for authority, and and but he he wanted to play us and the, the smiling at us when you know we're there to talk about the murder and all that. That's his deal. But I figured we could wear him down, and once he realizes that his world is done that you could stick a fork in his ass because he's done. And I, I thought that was our best chance of getting him to open up to us later on. So they process him in, and we take custody of him. We put leg irons on him, being shackled, y'all, the legs. We uh, actually had brought a waist belt. It's a leather belt that goes around the inmate's waist and it has a metal ring attached to the front. And so what you do is you, when you handcuff them, you always turn the handcuff key. And let's start with the shackles. The shackles, they have keyhole, the, the, the keyhole where you put your key in and you have to turn the right back to the left to make it pop loose. You never transport a prisoner with the keyhole facing upwards. You always put the shackles on one where the keyhole is facing down. Why? In case they're behind your back, They'll have to bend over to try to manipulate the lock to open it. I don't know if this guy's Houdini. I did everyone like this. Handcuffs, if you're being cuffed in the front for transporting, you don't put the handcuff keyhole facing the fingers. You put it facing the body. Why? Because they can't reach over and manipulate the lock and try to pick it. So the transport belt goes around its waist and you you put the handcuffs through it so they're attached this way so he can't really even extend his hands down to his feet. And, I mean, he could pick his feet up in the air, but shit, we're not in a crew. We don't have a caged car. We have an unmarked SUV. So in my mind, he's, he's a murderer, cold-blooded murderer, and he was going to kill that cop if he could get away with it. 
officer safety. At the end of the day, Calvin and I were going home. So anyway, we strap them all up, chain them up, and so let's say we get in a wreck or something, and he can't just take off running. I mean, they make it where you can barely even walk in his shackles, much less run. So we hook him up, get done booking him, load him in the back of the SUV. Of course, we had, when we take him to custody, the first thing we, from their custody, the first thing we do is, is search him again. We had called for another deputy. I mean, I was trying to remember who it was. We get, we, Call Stan, told him, hey, look, we got him. He ain't saying shit, and, and he won't even acknowledge rights, et cetera. We're going to take him back to the parish when, you know, be a long ride for him, right? So we needed to get possession of the vehicle because it had to be processed. Now, they had called, when they made the arrest, they had called a tow truck. They can't leave it in the campground, and there might be possible evidence, and like the pistol. They called the tow truck. The, the truck had been placed inside that pair sheriff's office secured evidence lot. So we had to call for a tow truck and have it towed to the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab in Baton Rouge, which is three hours away. So you can't just do that. With a, um, it's a death penalty case. We had to get a deputy to drive all the way to that parish, then get a tow truck to take it tow it to Baton Rouge, and the deputy has to follow him, kind of maintain the chain of custody, if you will, so he can get up in a death penalty trial and testify that nobody planted anything in the truck and what have you. Maintain, again, y'all, evidence is everything. So that that was done. We let him use the bathroom before we left. And, of course, we stood in there, YP'd, and then, you know, put him in the back of the SUV, and I just told him straight up, I was riding in the passenger seat, Calvin was driving. And I told him straight up, and we put him in there, I said, listen, dude, you do anything, anything, and you're going to regret it. I said, I'm not threatening you, I'm promising you. I said, as far as I'm concerned, you're a cold-blooded fucking murderer of your mother-in-law. And you won't, you know, you don't want to talk to us. I get that. That's fine. And, but if you touch me, you're going to fucking feel it. Right. And and he just kind of smiled and shook his head. To him, it was almost like it was a game. So we start the ride back and we start talking. And I said, you know what, Calvin? I said, you've been to death row? Calvin said, I've been there once or twice. I said, you know what? These appeals process, they just last forever. I said, but, you know, even on death row and in prison, I said, you know what they hate, right? He said, yep. And... I said, they hate worse than murderers. People on death row are obviously there for killing other people, but even the killers on death row hate rapists. But more than that, people that kill children and more than that, people that kill old defenseless people. And we started playing it like that. And the ride was a long one. And y'all, I must stop it there because I think what I have, it was just, I need to tell you about the ride to Livingston Parish, the three-hour ride, and what transpired, and what happens when we get there. So I'm going to conclude part four of Monsters. I can't get into you. I can't do the story justice and tell you what all Calvin and I talked about and what happens next. But if you think you know the story... You don't know the whole thing. Stick with me. Tune in. Monsters Part 5. It is the best part yet. So, I love and appreciate each and every one of y'all. You're the best fans in the world. Life is rule. As always, justice for Courtney Coco. Hopefully, by the time you hear this, the rest will have been made. Um, I'm recording this uh, at least a week early. I want to thank y'all. appreciate you. Patreon members, love you, love you, love you. Hope you enjoyed your bonus episode for November. And if you can't be a Patreon member, I get that, y'all. Please go leave me a review on iTunes. Um, check out our social media. Instagram is at Real Life Real Crime. And I post stuff on there every day. And that's not on our other social media pages. And, you know, well over 28,000 on one, on the 
Real Life, Real Crime, Friends, Fans, and Crew page. We have a plethora of pages, and, and we have all the social. Oh, check out our YouTube channel. We're putting up videos to some of the past episodes, and so when you go to listen to it, you it's more like a movie. There's interviews and, and things like that. Y'all check that out. It's Real Life, Real Crime podcast on YouTube. And as always, y'all, you know, I'm going to sign off with talking about LOPA, the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. It's a nonprofit organization that facilitates the organ donors into giving life, give the gift of life. If you die and by chance you're, you're an organ donor and you die, and by chance you, you meet the criteria for your organs to be used, you will save lives, okay? So go to lopa.org. It takes two minutes. Sign up to be an organ donor. Be a hero. When they, There's a spot on the page where they ask you, how did you hear about them? Check Livingston Parish Literacy and Technology Centers, Criminal Justice Students, and you can also check Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. They put us on there, which I think is kind of cool. But uh, the students at Livingston Parish Literacy Technology Center are the ones that turn me on to it, and they're working to reach a certain number of donors. That they kind of make that their class mission under Miss Kelly Jennings, and their teacher is awesome, and Kim Alvin, their principal, and Southeastern's involved with Miss Crystal. So, yeah, j- just check it. And go be an organ donor. Save a life, all right? And I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on Murder Bayou. Peace. Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Template.